Welcome to the Hoover Virtual Policy Briefing Series. I'm Tom Gilligan, Director of the Hoover Institution. For more than a century, our mission has been dedicated to generating policy ideas that promote economic prosperity, national security, and democratic governance. The dissemination of our work has led to significant impacts on important public policy initiatives here and around the world. These briefings provide an opportunity to hear directly from some of our top scholars to inform the discussion on COVID-19 as we begin to move forward and also as we try to anticipate what lies ahead. Today, we'll be, we'll be discussing Europe, China, and the world after COVID-19. I'm glad you could join us. Hello, Pleasure to be with you. Yeah, we'll be taking audience questions, and I want to encourage you to submit yours uh, using the Q&A button located at the bottom of your screen. Today's briefing is from contemporary historian Timothy Gartnash. Tim is a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution and professor of European Studies at the University of Oxford. He is an internationally acclaimed contemporary historian and author of 10 books of political writings or history of the present, which has charted the transformation of Europe over the last half century. His essays appear regularly in the New York Review of Books, and he writes a column on international affairs in The Guardian. Welcome, Tim, and, th Tim, and thanks for joining us today. Pleasure to be with you. Great. You know, a lot of our focus in these discussions has been about various aspects of COVID-19 as it relates to the United States. Uh, but you're a scholar and located, of course, in Europe. I want you to tell us a little bit about how the uh, pandemic has affected uh, Europe. Take us on a tour of the countries in the EU and tell us how the pandemic is affecting them. Well, the first interesting point is there is no single answer for Europe. Every country has handled this in its own way, and they've been very different stories. So at one end, you have countries like Austria, Norway, relatively small countries, acted very fast, they've done very well. Amongst the bigger countries, Germany has done really quite remarkably well. It's been handled very well, partly because Angela Merkel is a scientist, so was able to evaluate the, sci the, the scientific evidence. Um, and at the other end, you have countries like Spain and Italy, and I'm afraid Britain, my own country, which have had a pretty high case and, and death count and haven't handled that so well. But for a number of different reasons. And then you have interesting standouts like Sweden, which famously did not implement anything like so rigorous a lockdown. And frankly, we're still waiting to see mm -hmm. what the effect of that is going to be. I mean, the death rate seems to be going up. So I think the jury is out on that. But in terms of Europe as a whole, Tom, I think the question to Europe comes not so much in the immediate pandemic. That's about national government. Yeah. It comes in what I'm going to call the economic pandemic, which is going to follow in the next two years. Yeah. And the question yeah. then is, how does Europe handle that? Yeah. Well, tell us about how the economies of the European region are going to be affected over the next couple of years. And then whenever you'd like, tell us how you think the European Union is going to cope with the challenges associated with those activities. Well, I would take those two together because I think, you know, the basic question is, does Europe emerge weaker and more divided or stronger and more united? That's just yeah. to put it a bit simplest. And there are at least three big divisive tendencies in Europe, which we've seen already. Mm -hmm. One is Brexit, major, major mistake in economy has left the EU. What's mm -hmm. going to happen on that? The second is the north-south divide inside the Eurozone. Mm -hmm. right? Wealthy creditor countries like Germany, the Netherlands and the North, poorer 
debtor nations like Italy, Spain, Portugal, Greece in the south, who've been particularly hard hit first by the Eurozone crisis and now by the pandemic. Yeah. What's going to happen to that? The third big one is the West-East divide. That is to say, you have countries like Hungary, which in my view is no longer a democracy, and Poland, which is eroding rule of law and democracy at an alarming rate, mm -hmm. who've taken the opportunity of the crisis to, to accelerate that process. There are three big splits, Brexit, North, South, yeah. East, West. And the question is, on each one of those, does it actually accelerate the disintegration, or does Europe get its act together and respond? Yeah, that's a good contextual deal. David wants to know the answer to the question, though, that you raised. How will the pandemic affect EU cohesiveness, especially after Brexit? So the first answer is it's a big test. Because yeah. at the moment, we had an opinion poll about six weeks ago where a vast majority of Italians, and let me remind you, Italy is a founding member state of the EU, yeah. said Europe had left them in the lurch and EU membership had been no use at all in fighting the pandemic. Yeah. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, we had another poll saying 42% of Italians were in favor of leaving the EU. Mm -hmm. So there's no question the immediate impact has been put, put the whole thing under enormous strain. Mm -hmm. Only yesterday, uh, Chancellor Merkel of Germany and President Macron of France proposed that the EU should have an economic recovery fund post-COVID, 500 billion euros, mainly to go to the South European states. Mm -hmm. Now, if that goes through and it has to be accepted by the rest of the EU, and by the way, most of that is in grants, not loans, right. that is not peanuts. That's a big deal. And if you get Europe getting serious about making sure that the north-south divide does not widen. So, for example, Italian public debt is currently 135% of GDP. With the inevitable spending on the COVID crisis, it could shoot up to 150, 165% yeah. of GDP. What are we going to do about that? But if the EU does the necessary to keep north and south in the Eurozone together, and at the same time gets tougher on Hungary and Poland, and makes a reasonable deal with Britain, then five years down the road, the EU could actually be stronger. Interesting. The, in, in many respects, the North-South divide is about economic inequality or economic differences in the countries. Is it fair to characterize the East, the West-East divide has a difference in opinion about the proper governance of the state? One, the West being more um, comfortable with democratic institutions, the East being more comfortable with authoritarian institutions. So is that too simple? I wouldn't want to characterize it like that, Tom, quite, because that suggests that, as it were, Poles and Hungarians and Czechs were never that interested in democracy. Well, yeah. I know an awful lot of Poles and Hungarians and Czechs who have been extremely interested in democracy and fought for it much harder than most of us have had to, my friends, in the 1980s and 1990s. Um, but what is the case is that you have very effective populists, particularly in Hungary and Poland, who yeah. exploited all the discontents that have come from the transition to capitalism yeah. and democracy and turned that in an authoritarian direction. So the answer to your question is, yes, the West, the, the North-South divide is fundamentally about economics, about people who are in the same boat because they're in the Eurozone, but some are doing much worse than others. The West-East divide is fundamentally about democracy versus 
dictatorship. Yeah. Uh, you talked about Brexit being a big divide. I have two questions about that. Um, Britain left the EU, I believe, in January. That's a time frame. Exactly. This is the time period where they were supposed to be negotiating with the EU for an exit plan. How, how has the pandemic affected that planning process? One, Massive, massively. Yeah. Sorry, they do, shall I take that one first? And yeah, then, please talk so, about that. Tell us what, what it looks like going forward. So uh, massively impacted the negotiations, as you might imagine, starting with the fact it's very difficult to negotiate over Zoom. Yeah. Um, and uh, going on with the fact that all the governments and institutions concerned have been wholly preoccupied with COVID, so they haven't had time to look at the Brexit negotiations. Yeah. What it's looking like at the moment is that the Johnson government, which is, of course, a hard Brexit government, is determined to get Britain out of the transition period. Because currently, as you know, we're still in the single market and most of the EU arrangements mm -hmm. at the end of this year. And the prospect that raises is that we will have a very hard Brexit or even a no-deal Brexit Mm -hmm. at the same time as the maximum impact of the COVID pandemic hits mm -hmm. our economy. So the British economy will face a huge double whammy, COVID and Brexit coming together. And that's going to be an enormous challenge for this country. The politics of it are very interesting. The yeah. politics are that the Johnson government can say, no, 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 that wasn't, that wasn't Brexit. It was COVID. So yeah. all the negative consequences that may flow from Brexit can be attributed to or concealed behind COVID. Yeah, interesting. Uh, do you see the nation states? Uh, Eric asked the following question. What is, what is your perspective on the future of nation states within the concept of Brexit? Are, are nation states going to ascend in relative importance to European Union institutions because of Brexit? So what I would say on that is, first of all, rumors of the death of the nation have been much exaggerated. Right. And the Europeans five, 10 or 15 years ago would say it's the end of the nation, not, not a bit of it. I mean, if this COVID pandemic has co to told us one thing, it is that in a crisis, people turn to their national government. Yeah. But I don't think you should expect out of that that there will be a whole chain of Brexits that the European Union will disintegrate like the Roman Empire yeah. and everybody will go back to the nation state in Europe. I don't think that is where we are. I think the, um, what you're gonna see ideally is a rebalancing between national governments and the EU institutions. Because there are some things like dealing with China where there really is safety in numbers. Yeah. You're dealing with a giant, it helps to be a giant yourself. So we're stronger together. And many other things which are best done by the national government. So that's, I think, how it has to play out. Got it. Let me ask one more question about the European region. Robert asked, how will the pandemic affect the timeline and conditions for EU enlargement in southeastern Europe, such as the Balkans? Negatively. Yeah. Um, Robert, it's, it's, a very, it's a very interesting question. There was already enlargement fatigue and uh, the EU was already finding it very difficult even to get to the point of considering taking in tiny countries like Macedonia, even by European standards, tiny countries. And that was held back by President Macron of France. 
this will, I think, further slow down the process. Yeah. And I think that's a real problem because one of the greatest promoters of democracy in the world, and certainly in Eurasia, has been the prospect of joining the European Union. Mm -hmm. Everyone from Spain, Portugal, and Greece after their dictatorships, right across Central Eastern and Southeastern Europe, has been encouraged to become and stay a democracy because they wanted to join the EU. Yeah. So, so it's, it's a card we shouldn't give up lightly. Got it. If you're just joining us, I'm Tom Gilligan, and this is the Hoover Institution's virtual policy briefing with Timothy, Timothy Gardnash. Uh, Tim, I want to turn to China. Uh, the United States has a complex and increasingly contentious relationship with China. Tell us a little bit about the relationship between China and the EU and the countries in the European region. So I think, Tom, that that is the biggest geopolitical question for Europe and the United States out of this crisis, the relationship with China. I, as you know, spent my first, first 10 years of my working life um, I witnessing and participating in the Cold War and then another 30 years studying the Cold War. And I would say that there is a new kind of Cold War between the United States and China already happening. I think that's a, a fair characterization of what's going on. It's a global, uh, multidimensional, long-term strategic struggle. The difference with the original Cold War is that back then, Europe was on its knees, was incredibly weak and poor, and it was the West Europeans who were trying to keep the United States in Europe to stand up for the Soviet Union. Now you have a much richer and more powerful Europe, uh, the largest trading partner for both the United States and China, which is looking at this emerging conflict between the United States and China and asking itself, where do we stand on this? And you're going to say, what's the answer Europe has given? The answer is profoundly contradictory. Because on the one hand, Europeans are growing much more skeptical about China than they were 10 or 15 years ago. Mm. German business, which used to be absolutely up for everything you could get from China, has now got extremely skeptical because they feel they've just been given a raw deal by China, there hasn't been a level playing field, their technologies have been stolen, Chinese companies are now becoming competitors, so they've become more skeptical. Politically, Europeans can see how repressive the regime of Xi Jinping has been, Xinjiang, basically mm -hmm. a totalitarian surveillance regime, the treatment of dissidents, the appalling treatment of Hong Kong, the arrests of Martin Lee and Jimmy Lai, who we had at Uber recently. Yeah. All of that Europeans can see. Plus the fact that in the COVID crisis, we can see that China handled it very badly at the beginning of the crisis. And we discover that we depend on China for our supply of face masks and medical gowns for things we need literally to save European lives, so the supply chains. All of that's going to make Europe tougher. On the other hand, mm -hmm. our economies are going to be hit for sick absolutely hit the six by the COVID pandemic. Business will be looking for business wherever it can find it. And one of those places is going to be China. And in particular, you know, we talked about the North-South divide. Yeah. Chinese economic trade and investment presence is strongest in the South European countries. Yeah. Greece, where they own the container harbor in Piraeus, Hungary, 
the Czech Republic, where the president of the Czech Republic said he wanted his country to be an unsinkable aircraft carrier for Chinese investment. Hmm. Take note of that. Viktor Orban in Hungary has just recently had a very friendly phone call with Xi Jinping. So that means there'll be a major economic incentive for, China, for Europe to keep on good terms with China, and particularly through these weaker South European economies, which have been hit very hard, mm -hmm. China will gain influence. And here's the rub. If you gain a lot of influence with one member state of the European Union, you effectively have a, a seat at the decision-making table in Brussels. Mm -hmm. Right? I mean, that's really important to note. Right. So there's a, there's a strong ambivalence, a conflict. There are forces working in both directions. And I think the challenge for us, for Europe and the United States, is to develop a coordinated twin-track policy. Uh -huh. One that is really tough where we need to be tough, um, but at the same time recognizes that we are economically interdependent. We're interdependent for facing climate change. We need to cooperate with China on many things. Yeah, is there are there are there any examples or any any historical references to um, cooperation between the United States and EU? That's something that's significant. I mean, that that is really a Cold War activity, right? Like something like uh, something that NATO facilitated. Does EU and the U.S. have the capacity to implement a strategy like the two-track strategy you talked about? So that is something which is very close to my heart. As you know, I wrote a book a few years ago called Free World, which is about the relationship between the United States and Europe. And the fact is, the historical fact is, Tom, history, culture, values we've shared for centuries, mm -hmm. if not millennia. Right. But as a geopolitical actor, the transatlantic West first came into being fighting one common enemy, namely Adolf Hitler, and then was forged fighting another common enemy, enemy namely Joseph Stalin of the Soviet Union. Right. And as soon as that common enemy had disappeared, the transatlantic bonds began to weaken. So that's the challenge, and that we don't see China in the same way necessarily as an enemy. Yeah. Against that, as you know very well as an economist, the trade and investment and tech and social and academic and research interconnection between the, the, Europe and the United States are unbelievably thick and dense and strong. Yeah. There's never been anything like that. So the question is, can we find the political relationship mm -hmm. that to some extent complements the continuing depth of the economic relationship? Yeah, yeah. The, I want to... I want rely on your expertise as a student of communist system and just ask you to help explain China to us. Uh, you know, the behavior has been perplexing over the course of this COVID-19 virus. Uh, is that typical behavior for a communist or authoritarian regime or what's unique about China that we need to know? So what in a word is unique about China is that it has a combination that we've never seen before in world history. Mm -hmm. It is to put it at its simplest, a Leninist capitalist system. Mm -hmm. Something we would have thought unimaginable at the time the Soviet Union collapsed. So it has in many ways, not always, but many ways, a dynamic capitalist economy, which is what enables us it to satisfy a lot of its people and uh, create a large middle class. 
but the political system is still Leninist. Mm -hmm. It's a real question whether it's still communist. I don't think Karl Marx would, as he <laughs> went to one of the five-star hotels in Beijing and saw the Communist Party apparatchiks having their slap-up dinner. I'm not sure he would recognize it as communist, but it's sure as hell Leninist, i.e. all power resides in a single party and now a single leader within that party. Now, one thing we know from history is that Leninist systems are good at many things, but one thing they're not good at is meeting the challenges of a complex, developed, modern economy and society. Yeah. And what you're going to find as we go forward over the next few years, is that that old contradiction between this very crude autocratic system of government, the Leninist system, and the complexity of the economy and society, particularly as, as, as China moves into the middle income position and the potential of the middle income trap, uh, and doesn't get a free lunch from the West, that contradiction is gonna become more acute. So I would sum it up like this. What my experience of Leninist systems tell me is that we should reckon with the probability of crisis in China. Mm -hmm. hmm. Interesting. I have a couple questions uh, about the culpability and responsibility of China for the COVID-19 virus. Uh, you know, Russ asked, will the world hold China responsible for the virus? And Cynthia asked a question which basically asked, why are European countries so slow to investigate and so tentative to hold China responsible for the spread of the virus? Um, to the latter question, the first answer is because 24-7 people have been preoccupied with fighting COVID, uh, fighting COVID at home, so they just haven't got to that larger issue. Um, the second answer is, of course, that because of the big economic relationship between China and the EU, European governments have been quite cautious in uh, uh, addressing that point. Um, what I think we should do is to have, so far as possible, an independent international investigation which understands what would need to be done mm -hmm. so that this didn't happen again. So rather than just hitting China over the head, which will be very satisfying, but may not get us that far, and one particular thing I think we should be doing is getting all of us, the US and Europe, behind Taiwan, having observer status at the World Health Organization. I see. You know, one of the countries in the world, people forget we have a Chinese democracy on this planet, Taiwan. Yeah. And one of the countries which has handled COVID absolutely best of them all is Taiwan. So I think that's a really important thing. So I think we should be careful what we focus on. Interesting. Uh, a colleague, a Stanford professor, Don Emerson, was intrigued by your discussion of Chinese relations, particularly with southern parts of the EU. He asked the following question. Is China practicing proxy veto diplomacy inside the EU in order to weaken it? Will it succeed? So the answer to that question, Don, and it's a question which is a very important question, is so far, only in very limited cases, right? At the moment, they're using these ties to get the products, the raw materials, etc., that they need to foster their own development, to build up the economic relationship. But uh, 
increasingly someone like Viktor Orban is becoming so dependent on China that we shouldn't be surprised if some way down the road China makes that ask. And let me tell you, as it were, I mean, this is not off the record, but this was told me off the record. One European foreign minister did say to me, you know, what Viktor Orban from Hungary does is quite scandalous because he basically goes to ask the Chinese what they want. And then he says, how can I help you? Now, that's just what one foreign minister says, but it gives you a sense of what the danger is for the European Union. Yeah. There are a couple questions that I think were spurred by your prediction of crisis in China. Uh, Jim Ash, you mentioned an, uh, an expected crisis in China as it becomes more middle class. How do you see that crisis unfolding? And then that's, that's a near-term question. David asked an interesting question. Over the next 50 years, do you think China will become a democracy? Has the Chinese people increasingly demand democratic reforms or freedoms? Or will China remain in a Leninist dictatorship? So to take those in order, and by the way, I think the time frame for crisis is, is sort of five to 10 years rather than two to three years, because obviously this is a very powerful state which can use nationalism and which also has a huge apparatus of repression, including, by the way, the use of the internet for totalitarian purposes. Yeah. Um, however, I think that crisis is probable. What unfortunately is improbable is that it will end the way the Soviet Union ended, mm -hmm. in a happy, peaceful transition to democracies mm -hmm. in most of the outer empire of the Soviet Union. That's what we hoped in the 1990s. That looks increasingly improbable. I think that more likely is that the regime of Xi Jinping, or whoever it is, will resort to even more extreme nationalism mm -hmm. to motivate and keep the loyalty of that population. I might even have a go at Taiwan, for example. So this probability of crisis actually could create an even more dangerous situation, but we have to be prepared for it, is my point. On the long-term question, I am fundamentally persuaded that in the long run, free and open societies are more attractive than closed and oppressive societies. Mm -hmm. And the reason I'm more than ever persuaded of that is that I spent a lot of time talking to young Chinese. You know, Tom, I had a big project on free speech for 10 right. years. We had a lot of students helping us, you know, which was the biggest cohort of students most interested in joining us. Number one, Chinese. Right. Number two, Russians. Number three, Iranians. So there is a vast store of young Chinese who are gradually becoming middle-aged Chinese who are not brave enough to confront the system frontally. But when the opportunity arises to have a transition to democracy, I believe we'll seize those chance. And our job is to keep those hopes alive until that moment comes. Yeah, interesting. One of the uh, consequences of this uh, pandemic and our relationship, the U.S. relationships with China is increased discussions of returning supply chains to the Western Hemisphere or at least to non-Chinese um, uh, Chinese type settings. Is there a, uh, Jonathan asked the following question, is there a made in Europe movement to wean their economies off supply, uh, off, off dependence on Chinese supply of goods? Absolutely. And it's become a strategic and security discussion. 
um, about vital goods like, as I said, face masks and medical supplies and pharmaceuticals and so on, uh, so that we will absolutely see some reshoring, the shortening of supply chains, uh, ensuring strategic provision in Europe. And Jonathan, the interesting thing is, I think much of that will actually be done on a European stage. Mm-hmm. So this initiative that Chancellor Merkel and uh, President Macron just made, that is one of the points they mentioned, that the EU needs to do this. Mm-hmm. And actually, it's much easier to do it in a, in a market of 440 million people than it is to do in small countries of 20 or 10 million people. So yeah, I think that's going to happen. Yeah. One last question on China, then we'll move on. Um, John wants to know, will the crisis in China cause possible conflict with Taiwan? So I think I mentioned already, John, it increases the danger of war. Mm -hmm. There have been some really worrying reports that the U.S. military is no longer as confident that in all scenarios it can defend Taiwan. I think there's a real lesson from the Cold War here that you have to have your red lines and the red lines have to be absolutely clear, be it West Berlin or Taiwan. There has to be no doubt in the minds of the other side that that line cannot be crossed. But as I say again, while you're being tough in containment and remaining strong, you also have to have the other track of, of constructive engagement and diplomacy. Yeah. Yeah, amazing. I want to remind everybody that you're listening to Timothy Garten Ash, a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution. You can find more research by Hoover Fellows at our website at hoover.org. To change topics, uh, William has the following question, Tim. It's can Professor Ash address the effect of COVID uh, and on Putin? Uh, recent stories present Putin at risk. Is there really an effective opposition to him in Russia? And then just draw in Russia to this whole uh context right now. Is Russia a threat to EU? And has that threat been amplified by the COVID-19 crisis? So that's a great question. And the answer is that in the last decade, Putin's Russia has been a major threat to the EU. This is a country that, for the first time since 1945, seized an a piece of territory of a neighboring state, unilaterally by force. No one had done that since Adolf Hitler. Uh, and, and there's been a big campaign of disinformation, of divide and rule, of supporting extremist parties. It's been a major threat. Now, here's one of the few bits of good news mm-hmm. to come out of COVID so far, which is it's bad news for Putin mm-hmm. in two respects. First of all, because Russia has handled it quite badly. And since he's the big chief, since he's told Russians he's responsible for everything, Some people are going to hold him responsible for that. More important, the oil price has gone through the floor. And Russia is an oil state. It's a petro state. Mm -hmm. Uh, It it doesn't have the diversified economy of China. It's not comparable. So that those two things together mean that Russia is in a difficult position. That's good news for Europe in that Russia will be weaker, less, I think, inclined to intervene. I do not think this means the end of Vladimir Putin tomorrow, because unfortunately, he has the system pretty well sewed up. Um, His opponents have either been killed or exiled or put into prison or bought off. 
And so it's going to be some time before the popular discontent mm. finally translates, as I'm sure it will, into some sort of a regime change. Interesting. I want to, uh, you mentioned earlier the book that you recently published entitled Free Speech, 10 Principles for a Connected World. I want to ask you, how has the pandemic affected threats to free speech across the world? So, as you know, Tom, I spent the last 10 years working on this big book and project on free speech because, you know, Hoover's motto is ideas defining a free society. And if there's one idea that defines a free society, it's free speech. And I think there are a lot of threats to it in our own societies. I would say in the context of COVID, two things. Number one, uh, all authoritarian regimes take the chance to shut up or lock up a few people they don't like. So it's been very bad for independent journalists, be it in Iran or Russia or Hungary or wherever it may be. That's kind of obvious. The second thing, it's a big challenge to the big American digital platforms, Google, Facebook, Twitter, because they're getting criticism from both sides. On the one hand, people are saying, hey, you're leaving up all this misinformation about COVID. On the other hand, people more from a libertarian or conservative side maybe are saying, hey, this is censorship because you're taking this stuff down and it's free speech. The good news is that I think these platforms, and I've worked a lot with them on this, are beginning to find a middle way between purely private censorship Mark Zuckerberg decides what you can say on a platform that reaches two and a half billion people uh, and a complete free-for-all which leaves our children and grandchildren genuinely vulnerable to some very nasty stuff, violent, uh, pornographic and so on. And the middle way is a kind of self-regulation. Um, and the best example so far is that Facebook, and I've worked quite a bit with them on this and the design of it, have just announced an independent oversight board. Very interesting, diverse. I think a Hoover Fellow is one of the co chairs of it, Mike McConnell. A very interesting group. They will scrutinize the takedowns made by Facebook and the content policy decisions. People can appeal those decisions to the oversight board. And if they decide that Facebook got it wrong, then Facebook has to put the stuff back up. Mm -hmm. I think that's a really promising model. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Um, Let's talk more broadly about free speech. There have been very active government-sponsored misinformation, disinformation campaigns about the origins of and propagation of the disease around the world. A little bit of a blame game, a little bit of straightforward propaganda. How should the West or free societies confront those activities by state actors? So first of all, I would distinguish between misinformation and disinformation. Misinformation is simply misleading information um, put online for all sorts of different reasons, just because people find it cool or interesting or exciting or don't know better. Disinformation is malicious, false information deliberately distributed by bad actors, be they uh, states or terrorist groups or whoever it might be, or violent extremist groups. So disinformation is a narrower category. I think we have to get a much better idea of how much of this is going on. And I think we have to try and combat it by almost every means at our disposal, including legal and regulatory means. Mm -hmm. 
But in doing that, Tom, we have to watch out that we don't, as we say in England, using a football or soccer metaphor, score an own goal. Do you say that? Scoring yeah. an own goal? Yeah. Uh, we do. The, those people who follow soccer. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That we don't score an own goal. And the own goal would be saying we're going to ban, ban Chinese television from the United States. Yeah. Right? Or Russian television from the United States. Because sure as hell, the next thing that happens is that China says, okay, we're going to ban the BBC and CNN and Fox News from China. Mm. And we pay a much bigger price for that. That's much more important for us. So we, you know, we had this problem in the Cold War and we have to be careful about it. The other thing I would say quickly is, if you look at the evidence, and actually Hoover and Stanford have done interesting work on this, the much bigger problem online is, is not actually fake news. Mm -hmm. It's hyperpolarization. Mm -hmm. It's people going off into their own bubbles so that Democrats and Republicans not only have their own views, but have their own facts. Yeah. Different groups have their own facts. And that's something else we have to get at. Yeah, yeah. interesting. Um, you're a student of, of political systems and governance more broadly. Richard asks the following question uh, that could raise, raise a lot of questions. Does the COVID virus bring about or favor the establishment of more authoritarian governments as people are more dependent on central, centralized governments to combat the, the public health threat? Richard, that's a, that's a great question. Um, I, I, we did out of Oxford with a, with a survey organization, a survey across Europe, which produced the following staggering result. 53% of young Europeans, 53%, a majority, say that authoritarian states are better equipped than democracies at combating the climate crisis. Mm -hmm. So that was about climate change. But it's a, a really shocking result to me. I have an awful feeling that if you ask the question now about who's better equipped to fight pandemics, the figure wouldn't be that high, but it might be 35%, 40% of young Europeans. Right. And when you dig deep and ask, so why is that? It's not that they like the look of Xi Jinping's China or Putin's Russia or Iran. It's not like the 1930s when lots of people in the West really admired fascist Italy or Nazi Germany, it's that they have major doubts about the ability of democracies to deliver. So I think the answer to Richard's question is in our own hands. How good a democracy is going to prove in the medium to long term mm -hmm. and coping with a pandemic while preserving our valuable freedoms and above all also in managing the economic recovery from the pandemic. And there, I think one has to say as a historian, at the moment, the jury is out. I see. Yeah, it's an empirical question after all, at the end of the day, in many ways, right? Indeed. Yeah. Indeed. Uh, Aaron asked a question about globalization. Do you think, does he ask, is globalization still the ultimate or dominant direction for the world? We have clearly seen, since the high point of globalization around 2008, deglobalization started with the financial crisis and has continued and there will be more of it. We discussed the supply chains a moment ago after this. The question is, how far back does that go? Do we go back all the way to a kind of, uh, the kind of world we had between the First and Second World Wars of beggar my neighbor nationalist policies, which in the long run is no, no good for anybody's economy, or do we find a new balance, which is actually what we need, between 
doing more at home. We have this discussion here in Britain. There are certain jobs that we want to be done more in Britain and so on, that sort of thing. A lot of countries, more supplies, strategic supplies to have in our own countries or in Europe, and keeping alive free trade from which, on the whole, the world has greatly benefited. So I think that's a question. Um, I'm not going to give the cop out of the, of the jury is out on that one, because I actually think um, that it's not going to be the end of globalization. I think yeah. the end of globalization has been wildly overstated. Yeah, interesting. Well, Tim, thank you very much for the discussion. It was very insightful. We appreciate you signing in and talking to us today. Great pleasure. Thank you very much. Our next Hoover virtual policy briefing will be Thursday, May 21st at 11 a.m. Pacific time and 2 p.m. Eastern time with Lan Hee Chin. He will, he will be talking about the timely topic of COVID-19 and the politics of the World Health Organization. Lan Hee is a fellow in American Public Policy Studies at the Hoover Institution and Director of Domestic Policy Studies in the Public Policy Program at Stanford University. He has served as the Chief Policy Advisor to Mitt Romney and also as a senior appointee at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. I want to thank you all for joining us today. We hope to see you again on Thursday. Have, have a nice day.